0: Welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving
1: decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is Sebastien Couture. And I'm Brian Fabian Crane. On July 10th and 11th, we were in London for the Coin Summit Conference. This two day event gathered approximately 250 investors, entrepreneurs, and developers to discuss some of the most important issues facing the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency ecosystem.
0: I would like to thank Pamir Gilenby and Gulnar Hasnain for putting on such a great event and thank you very much for inviting us as well. So we start our coverage of Coin Summit with Garrick Heilman. He's a CoinDesk contributor and an economic historian at the London School of Economics and he delivers the opening state of
1: Bitcoin keynote which is a data-driven assessment of how the Bitcoin ecosystem is currently developing. The second part of the episode features a panel discussion called Will Bitcoin Last the Distance, where Jeff Karzik, Bitcoin developer, and Professor Amin Sirer of Cornell University, and Peter Todd discuss the issue of mining centralization. The panel was moderated by angel investor Chess San.
2: Now I would like to welcome Garrick Heilman. Welcome, Garrick. So Garrick is an economic historian. He's um, just finishing off his PhD, I think, at uh, the LSE yes. at the moment. Um, and he's also uh, a contributing writer at CoinDesk, and he's the author of the State of Bitcoin Report, which um, you'll be presenting today. Yes. Over to you.
0: Great, thank you, Premier. It's a pleasure to be here at my third Coin Summit. Uh, boy, Bitcoin's come a long way in the last uh, 12 months. Um, so we're here to talk about the state of Bitcoin. So earlier this year, Coindesk uh, released its first state of Bitcoin, which uh, has generated about 130,000 views on SlideShare. We're very happy with that. We released a quarterly update a few months ago. And now this is our second quarter update, which we're releasing today. It will be available for free download online at Coindesk.com about 11 a.m., I believe. So the state of Bitcoin. First, I hope all of you just briefly know if Coindesk. It's the leading provider of news, uh, price information. Our Bitcoin price index is widely cited, and information about Bitcoin. Uh, We have a global team of uh, news uh, personnel around the world. Um, So here's the structure of the State of Bitcoin report. Uh, We're gonna talk a little bit about price, uh, the media landscape, uh, the ecosystem and VC investment landscape, uh, commerce, what's happening with Bitcoin commerce, the technology side, and then uh, regulation and the macroeconomic picture. Um, we're just going to highlight a few slides from each of these sections today because we don't have time to go through the full report. I do encourage you to download it uh, for free at Coindesk, coindesk.com later today. So first, price and valuation. So uh, Professor Stus- Susan Athey at Stanford says there's been too much focus on Bitcoin's price, um, and what's interesting if we look at the top ten stories that were read on coindesk.com over the last uh, quarter, uh, at least four of them actually were price related. Um, a fifth, the failed prediction of Marty Williams for a Bitcoin price implosion in Q2 is arguably also price related. So clearly, there's quite a bit of interest in what's happening with uh, Bitcoin's price action. And Q2 was a very good quarter for Bitcoin. Um, things started off a little, you know, a little sour, uh, but actually, Bitcoin's price is up 40% since the end of, end of Q1. It's still about 16% below where it started the year at, and hasn't hit its, uh, reached its all-time high again, but it's actually rebounded quite nicely in Q2, up 40%. Um, and the low point seemed to have come, basically, right around the 11th of April. There was a lot of rumors in China about possible exchanges getting shut down, banking licenses being uh, revoked, and uh, an official from the People's Bank of China came out on the 11th of April and said, you know, is not gonna be banning Bitcoin that appears to kind of mark the bottom of the downward trend we are seeing. And then since uh, we've seen a lot of positive commercial news, Apple, Expedia, others, and of course the U.S. Marshals, uh, possibly for the first time in history, made economic policy for the United States by selling uh, Bitcoins. Uh, usually, they don't sell things that are illegal. So at the federal level, it looks like Bitcoin might be uh, legalized. And we've seen the price respond positively since then. So. One of the reasons we titled this The State of Bitcoin Report rather than The State of Cryptocurrencies is that we felt that Bitcoin was really the big enchilada and that's really continued to be the case. Uh, at the start of the year, Bitcoin had about 80% of the total market cap of cryptocurrencies. There's some 200 or so cryptocurrencies out there. That's actually grown. Bitcoin's share of that has grown up to 93%. So even though the price has come down, its share of the cryptocurrency pie has actually increased. And If you look at Litecoin, for example, Litecoin was about 18 times smaller than Bitcoin a few months ago. Uh, it's now 35 times smaller. So uh, Bitcoin's really outpacing the number, the number two cryptocurrency by a significant margin. So at the last uh, Coin Summit in March, one of the questions that came up was, which type of fees uh, could Bitcoin potentially displace? I believe it was on the Mark Andreessen panel. Um, and, and Gil Lurie at Webbush Securities and I decided to go through and actually start delineating which fees Bitcoin can potentially impact. Um, payment processing, title insurance, collections, there's a whole bunch of these. And if you look at the sections of the US economy, and this is just the US that these fees and trust-based services touch, you're talking about a slice of the US economy that is worth $3.4 trillion. Uh, about 23, 21% of the US economy is potentially impacted by Bitcoin, so a huge, huge potential impact in terms of economic uh, value. On the market capitalization slide, we've, uh, we've shown this slide before, we've added in a few sectors, some of these trust-based sectors like the trust uh, escrow uh, sector and the securities exchanges, and you're looking at, and again, this is primarily a North American view here, but you're looking at about $550 billion of publicly traded market cap that's potentially in- impacted by Bitcoin technology. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the media landscape for Bitcoin. So we're seeing mainstream media uh, attention and interest in Bitcoin uh, remain. You know, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, uh, The Guardian and others are still really actively covering uh, Bitcoin. So this is something that hasn't really fallen off the radar screen. Um, you know, It's not like the media just shows up for Mt. Gox and other kind of big events. They're actually still actively um, covering the, 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 the sector. Um, Wikipedia views are also another really interesting metric to look at. Um, Bitcoin is the 89th most trafficked uh, a page on Wikipedia. Uh, there are about 900,000 views over the last 90 days. And in the kind of public intellectual sphere, I've got three, uh, three Harvard uh, leading thinkers here. We're seeing a, a somewhat of an evolution, I think, in, in the comments that are coming from you know, some of the people who have the, the, the public microphone. So Ken Rogoff, former chief economist of the IMF, author of This Time is Different with Carmen Reinhart, he was a little more bearish on Bitcoin's ability to become a currency, but uh, Larry Summers, who was very close to becoming the next Federal Reserve Chairman, uh, my doctoral thesis advisor, Neil Ferguson, they're starting to look at Bitcoin more broadly from a technology perspective and seeing that this isn't just a currency, this is a very transformative technology that transcends simply a, a monetary analysis. So if we shift to the kind of Bitcoin ecosystem and venture capital environment, um, Quarter one of 2014 was a very good quarter for Bitcoin, $57 million invested in, in startups, but actually Q2 is even better. 73 million has been invested, and that's not including the $20 million deal uh, that was announced here early in Q3. Um, so, so about a 28% increase uh, over the first quarter. And that's, that total is actually, the all-time uh, quantity of money invest, invested in startups is actually 240 million if you factor in Zappos' $20 million deal. 150 of which has come here just in 2014 alone. So one of the slides in our last State of Bitcoin report that generated quite a bit of attention was this comparison we did between uh, the early internet, 1995 is the earliest year we have investment data for uh, for venture capital investments in internet startups, and uh, Bitcoin in 2014. Mark Andreessen said that Bitcoin reminds him of the internet in 1993, so the comparison's not you know completely um, perfect in that regard, but if you actually annualize the current 2014 uh, venture capital investment uh, and what we're projecting is $284 million to be invested in 2014, that's actually higher than the early stage financing uh, investment that was made in 1995 internet companies. These numbers haven't been adjusted for inflation. We haven't done any adjustments for the difference in costs of starting, you know, starting a company between now and then. But it's still, I think, a very interesting comparison to, to show that the VCs are really walking the talk and putting their, their money where their mouth is in terms of backing Bitcoin companies to the degree they back the early Internet. There have actually been eight companies in total that have raised uh, $10 million or more. Zappo is the leader with 40 million. BitPay is not far behind with a little over 30 million. And a total of 22 startups that have at least uh, a million dollars in capital raised. And if your company uh, has raised a million dollars or more and you don't see your name up here, please get in touch. We do want to keep track of the full universe of Bitcoin backed startups. So now looking at the geographic spread here, uh, you know, North America is still a very dominant, um, you know, place for investment. Seventy-eight percent of all dollars are going to North American companies. Uh, but interestingly, Europe actually has passed Asia uh, in the last quarter. The BitFury investment actually, I think, had a big, big, big part of that. Um, and South America is now on the map for the first time. So we're starting to see kind of a broadening of Bitcoin investment out of North America and into other areas of the world. If we look at individual countries, you know, the United States, not surprising, 77% of all dollars, 59% of the number of companies even are based in the US. But again, we're seeing uh, new countries coming online Mexico, Holland, Argentina all got their first Bitcoin or VC backed Bitcoin company in Q2. So we're a broadening of the uh, investment landscape. Now, last year at Coin Summit, I asked on the panel. Where is the future home of Bitcoin gonna be? Where, where is kind of the, the center? And uh, if you look at Silicon Valley versus the rest of the world, uh, you can see that Silicon Valley is taking 48% of the, the dollars and about a third of the companies are actually based there. So Silicon Valley is still a very dominant, um, I think, place for, for Bitcoin, but it's not 75% or, or you know the whole story by any means. So this is how we view the Bitcoin uh, industry in terms of different sectors. Uh, we think there are really six distinct sectors uh, in the Bitcoin uh, uh, economy. Uh, you have pure play companies like your wallets, your exchanges, your payment processors, and uh, those, those companies I think don't need much, uh, much explanation. Mining includes both mining manufacturers and also cloud mining. Uh, the two categories that do need a little more explanation are financial services and then the one we have in the center there called Universal, which we'll talk about in, in depth in a little more uh, in just a moment. Financial services, uh, Bitcoin companies, include everything from ATM manufacturers to uh, to gift cards, to analytics and news firms like CoinDesk. Um, the Universal companies are the ones actually that are doing a bunch of these different uh, things. They're, they're a wallet, they're a payment processor, they may be deploying ATMs. We'll, we'll again talk about them more in just a second. Universal companies are commanding the most uh, VC investment. 25% of the dollars are going to them. But they've slipped a bit. Wallets. Uh, payment processors, uh, mining, and financial services all saw significant investment in Q2. Uh, the only categories that actually didn't see significant investment in Q2 were universals and uh, the exchanges. But the, the pie is you know, starting to become more evenly distributed across these six categories. Now this category universal, uh, we, we have companies like CoinPlug, Circle, Coinbase in here. Again, these are companies that are looking to do more than one aspect of kind of the Bitcoin value chain um, they're really trying to, I think, take advantage of two key features of financial services. One is efficiency—the ability to, you know, to have your customer relationship uh, for your exchange, your wallet, all in one place—and also trust. I trust you to store my bitcoins. I'm also going to trust you to do my payment processing. Or I'm going to trust your ATM. Coinplug is a good example of this. They're deploying ATMs, as I mentioned, as well as doing processing and and, uh, and providing a wallet. Um, And we think this very well could be uh, an important trend or development in Bitcoin. Um, So we think a lot of companies will start pursuing the universal model or merge into uh, universals or risk fading away. Trust is a very important element, I think, in financial services. And having that trusted brand, along with with the efficiency, is something that I I think uh, customers are going to want. So looking at Bitcoin commerce... Um, some really important things happen in Q2 in terms of building uh, services and apps that will enable trust and make Bitcoin easier to use. Uh, Circle of course launched an insured wallet. Uh, insurance is a product that I think consumers have come to expect in other financial services and it's I think a very positive thing for Bitcoin to see that. I think that will give a lot of consumers comfort as they experiment with Bitcoin for the first time. You know, Zappos uh, debit card was derided in some circles as kind of a step back here. Bitcoin is supposed to be all digital. Why do we need some kind of physical card? But again, this is something that consumers are used to using, and it's a bridge to maybe going completely digital, uh, and I think that's a, a positive thing in, in terms of consumer adoption. And then I mentioned BitReserve. They've uh, they've done something, I think, that's not just radical for Bitcoin, but potentially uh, transformative across you know, corporate America, uh, the corporate world, as well as uh, organizations all over the world. And that's a transparent balance sheet. So this would be a balance sheet basically that you can audit in real time to know what kind of reserves, you know, what kind of assets that reserve is holding. Are they in treasuries? Are they in something else more exotic? Think about, you know, the banking system in 2008, where all we could see is at the end of the quarter when they've done some nice housekeeping, what the balance sheets look like. Uh, this is a complete game changer, I think, if, if they can pull it off. Um, so, think about a world in which uh, balance sheets are actually auditable in real time. So, for the first time, CoinDesk uh, is going to be making some forecasts uh, in our State of Bitcoin report. We didn't want to just be kind of like capturing kind of what had happened, we wanted to also be looking ahead. And here we have our forecast for um, the number of wallets we're expecting. Uh, to be in existence by the end of 2014. There's a little bit over five million wallets right now currently in existence. We're expecting by the end of the year to be about, there to be about eight million wallets. And then on the merchant side, um, you know, these names have already been mentioned. Dish, you know, $14 billion company which is now accepting Bitcoin, Expedia, Newegg. We think there's at least 63,000 merchants um, based on Coinbase's and BitPay's numbers that are currently accepting Bitcoin. However, we did a random sample of the CoinMap data. CoinMap's a site that actually has a map of different Bitcoin companies. And it looks like about half of the companies on CoinMap are actually self-processing. So this number could be significantly understated. It could be well in excess of maybe 100,000 uh, merchants that are actually accepting Bitcoin right now. And in terms of our merchant uh, uh, processing uh, our merchant accepting a forecast. Here we're, we're expecting about 100,000 merchants by the end of the year, based on the BitPay and Coinbase numbers and trends, to be accepting Bitcoin. Uh, CoinDesk.com. We're also tra- tracking the ATM deployment. Uh, so this is a map of where Bitcoin ATMs are located. Uh, these are, you know, just coming on and ramping up. There's about 103, roughly, uh, around the world today. So briefly talk about some of the Bitcoin technology. So the number of uh, GitHub updated repositories has been growing quite nicely. Chris Dixon I think wrote, wrote about this recently, the, the incredible uh, power of having this very large developer base out there that's interested in, in building applications for Bitcoin. Um, that's a, a huge, huge positive for Bitcoin's prospects. Right now there's about 340 apps in the Apple App Store that are Bitcoin related and about 250 in the Android store. So we're already seeing, you know, pretty, pretty large uh, development work being done. So shifting to regulation and macro, our last section. The regulation story, I think, for Bitcoin is, is tempered a bit. I think things have slowed down a bit. We're still seeing some setbacks. Bolivia uh, recently banned. Bitcoin It joined Iceland and Vietnam, as I think the three countries have actually outlawed Bitcoin. Not surprising in the case of Bolivia, they've been a uh, a serial kind of uh, currency debaser. Um, California, on the other hand, um, like New York State and other states in the U.S., has actually taken a more proactive and positive voice to actually legalize Bitcoin. Um, So, but the the regulatory picture continues to be a bit mixed. I think the big thing was that China seems to have stabilized in in April, and that's been, I think, a real positive story for Bitcoin. And I think on the whole, regulation is trending positively for Bitcoin. Um, this, this slide I've titled kind of keeping Mt. Gox in perspective. You know, a lot of media attention was, was you know, paid to the 500 million or so dollars that were lost uh, at Mt. Gox. But if you look at you know, some of these stories coming out of the traditional financial services system, you know, BNP Paribas, $9 billion fine. Just yesterday, I think Citibank agreed to a $7 billion settlement. J.P. Morgan earlier this year, 30 bi- or $13 billion. I mean, that's $30 billion right there between those three companies. Um, and, and the list just goes on and on in terms of, like, market manipulation and other fraud and malfeasance in the traditional financial services system. So, you know, Gox and some of the other problems that Bitcoin has had, I think, is a real small drop in the bucket compared to uh, what's going on with the big boys. At the same time, also, people always talk about, aren't you concerned that ISIS is using Bitcoin for, uh, for illicit transactions? I mean, Bitcoin really pales as a, as a medium for, uh, you know illegal activity compared to some of these other markets in, in cash, for example. So I think, again, that's something that gets blown way out of proportion uh, in the media. So something we don't have in the state of Bitcoin report, but I just wanted to give you a, kind of a first look at, which will be coming out here very shortly, is what, what I'm calling my Bitcoin Market Opportunity Index. So we all like to think that countries like Argentina and China are really fertile ground for Bitcoin for a variety of reasons. But I haven't seen any analysis done which actually goes through in a quantitative fashion and actually ranks countries based on things like, you know, what kind of technology capacity does the country have, what kind of smartphone adoption, what percentage of online commerce is taking place, what about financial repression, inflation, restrictions on capital controls. We're also looking at other socioeconomic factors, uh, GDP growth, uh, whether there's an entrepreneurial culture, a tech hub. Uh, what type of financial crisis have they had recently, um, if any? Was it a currency crisis? Was it a banking crisis, which may not has, have as a positive impact on Bitcoin adoption? So, in a few days, I'll be releasing um, a ranking of countries uh, based on uh, their kind of the market opportunity for Bitcoin uh, based on these, these variables. So, just to wrap up, there's I think some 60 slides in the uh, State of Bitcoin report. And uh, we know that's a lot of information to go through. We've got a summary uh, with the highlights right at the front of the report for you. And we've also, uh, we're adding this this dashboard as well, so you can get a quick snapshot of how Bitcoin's performing over time. This is what we think are the key Bitcoin adoption metrics. And you can see that, you know, wallets, for example, are up 7x over the last 12 months. We'll probably add a column, I think, for quarter over quarter as well. This and the summary are right up front in the State of Bitcoin report, which you can download for free at coindesk.com. And I thank you very much for your time. Look forward to a great conference. Thanks.
2: Okay, good morning. It seems some of us are missing in action. Um, I, I, I take it the, the parties must have been good. So welcome back to uh, day two of Coin Summit. So we're going to start with uh, a, a panel that uh, uh, I think is, is, is very important. Uh, and we're going to be discussing the future of Bitcoin. So um, first of all, a few words about uh, Jez, our moderator. So Jez is one of the best known and most accomplished tech entrepreneurs here in the UK. He took two companies public. Um, he uh, started more, much more, in two companies. His his last company, PKR.com, is one of the largest um, uh, online poker uh, multiplayer poker companies in, in the world. Very successful company. Um, Jazz also is, has been, in, you know, invested and involved in the Bitcoin space um, in a very deep way for you know for a couple years now. Um, he's an investor in many companies in the Bitcoin space. Um, he knows Bitcoin mining extremely well um, and you know he has, Jez also has a very strong product and technical background in general so I think there there couldn't have been a better person to to moderate this panel um, so uh, just a few words about um, uh, his fellow panelists so uh, Professor Sirar um, is a professor at Cornell and he's the author of Hacking Distributed which is a, a very widely read blog in the Bitcoin space and he's uh, him and you know, his colleagues at Cornell have written a number of papers, uh, particularly about some of the vulnerabilities in the Bitcoin network, um, and it'll be um, great to hear more about that today. Um, Peter Todd probably doesn't need too much of an introduction in this community, so he's one of the core developers, um, uh, you know, one of the guys who's you know, has been um, in the Bitcoin space pretty much right from the beginning, and Jeff Garzik. Um, uh, also one of the core developers, uh, again, doesn't need too much of an introduction and, and uh, he's you know one of the guys who's been uh, developing right from, from the beginning. So uh, welcome to our panel, uh, welcome
3: guys, big round of applause. Thank you. Good morning. I know it was uh, pretty tough to get here this early, so um, thank you all uh, to our fantastic panel. Um, We've been brainstorming some cool and topical questions. Uh, And we're going to start with the one that um, we've heard a lot about in the press, which is the 51% problem. And um, What about it? Is it a problem? Do we need to worry about it? Uh, Yes. (laughs) <laughs> and feel free to elaborate. <laughs> it uh, It is definitely
4: a problem. It is, uh, once you reach uh, 50%, you tend to be a single point of failure. And uh, that's, that's pretty much true in many systems, but especially in a consensus or distributed system. Um, in particular, uh, you can reverse transactions. You can uh, create a double-spending attack if you're a malicious actor, But uh, also there is the counter incentives in that uh, once you uh, perpetuate some of those attacks, then uh, the Bitcoin community presumably would become aware and uh, want to address that in a direct or rather direct sort of way. But so yes, short answer, it is a problem.
5: So let me add something to this, Um, and Jeff mentioned the attacks that are possible with the 51% uh, miner, but uh, it's also quite, the problem with 51% isn't so much that somebody will achieve 51% and then attack the network. 51% is a problem for the perception of Bitcoin as a decentralized system. The moment you have a miner that has achieved a monopoly, then the ability to distinguish uh, Bitcoin from any other single-issue currency uh, gets lost. So we suddenly lose the ability to bring new people in. We suddenly lose the value proposition that Bitcoin offers. The thing that actually attracted all of us to this space was decentralization. So even if a 51% is on their best behavior, even if there are no attacks against the system, even if there are no double spends, 51% is actually a net loss for the community at large. So it is something that I feel very strongly that we should take measures against. So... What
3: can we do about it? And is there a short-term and a long-term fix? We haven't heard from Peter yet. Well, I think in the short-term, there's a lot of education to be done, not of the community,
6: but really of the people who are, say, mining at ghash.io to make sure they better understand what their incentives are. Because if you have a long-term viewpoint on Bitcoin, you should not be part of ghash.io right now. You know, you should be part of a smaller pool. And then beyond that, well, then I think it's a very clear indication that we need to go fix the protocol. And there's a whole host of technical solutions. And it will take time to kind of evaluate them, better understand them, try them out on test networks and so on.
3: But long term, that's probably going to be what we'll see happen. And and Gunn has a a proposal for a technical solution as well, which will need to be evaluated.
5: Yeah, indeed. Uh, Itai Eyal and I have come up with a solution called Two-Phase Proof-of-Work that actually is very nice in the sense that it accommodates the current mining rings, the current mining infrastructure as it exists, uh, but allows us to actually push back. And um, I wouldn't say that it's anywhere near ready. We need to still uh, get some experience with it. Uh, But it's very nice to have those kinds of technical solutions in our back pocket as we discuss. Uh, with say a 51 percenter and say look guys you're actually hurting the community and there are technical measures we can take in the medium to long term to actually push back against 51 percenters and uh, so we're actually in an okay position when it comes to this that we have some technical solutions that we could deploy if we wanted to.
3: And so is there a short-term fix can we do something tomorrow to to uh, get us out of the of the problem. Well, the pool can do something tomorrow. We,
4: as a collective community, can't really do anything immediately tomorrow. But I also uh, like to point out that you know there there are technical solutions. There are uh, education, but there's also just simple free market and free market competition and the interest of the Bitcoin community and mining pools really incentivizes people to look at the 51% issue and say, okay, I'm going to switch pools. So in terms of uh, uh, market leadership, I like to point out that pools rapidly change market leadership. We've hit 51% multiple times before GHash. And each time, if you observe the mining pools over, uh, you know, periods of months and then years, you see market leadership just rapidly recycles. It's not just one player. It's one player, and then it's a second player, and then it's a third player.
3: And so uh, you really have a very, very dynamic competitive system. So which, to summarize, in the long term we'll have a technical fix and we're, we'll evaluate all of yes. them. But in the short term, we need the community to be more careful about where they mine and to spread their mining about, and we also need the mining pools to take more responsibility for their actions. Absolutely. Okay, great. So. Um, Now, um, a slightly more controversial one even. So, mining is the cost of securing the network. And currently mining is 140 petahash, approximately, which today is about 140 um, megawatts of power. But um, the cost of mining is related to the cost of Bitcoin and the block reward. So, when, when Bitcoin price gets higher, are we gonna spend many megawatts or even gigawatts one day on our mining and is that reasonable?
4: Yes. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. We have to secure our network, but uh, I think it's only a valid comparison if you uh, compare what it takes to secure a uh, traditional currency, both in terms of multi-million dollar printers, inks for to secure the physical currency, the cost of the data centers, and remember, uh, Bitcoin is not just currency, it's a payment network. And so you have to consider the cost of securing a uh, comparative payment network on top of securing the currency. So, you know, for the U.S. dollar, you have uh, Secret Service agents, U.S. Treasury agents, you have data centers, and you have multimillion-dollar printers, inks, et cetera. All of that has to be factored into the comparative equation. And so if you consider all of that, there's a great deal of energy wasted in securing the U.S. dollar. And, you know, that big number
6: can be a little misleading because in the future, and we're already beginning to see it as well, we'll be seeing things like people using Bitcoin mining equipment to go heat their houses, you know, make use of all this extra heat, as well as, curiously enough, put Bitcoin mining equipment in more decentralized ways because renewable energy is very cheap, except for the fact they have to get it from the middle of nowhere to cities. Of course, with Bitcoin mining equipment, people are already beginning to put the Bitcoin mining equipment where the energy is generated, which kind of changes
3: economics. And it's not as simple as saying, oh yeah, this must be generated by dirty coal. Yeah, there's a lot of Bitcoin mining now in Iceland where they have almost free energy with geothermal and very cold ambient temperature. So cooling is free as well. And that's one of the business
4: ideas I love to toss off is a uh, mining water heater. Yeah,
3: don't use that phrase in England. (laughs) It means something different. Great, okay. So um, what's happening with uh, the Bitcoin core development? Um, Where's it going? What are the issues?
4: Well, uh, uh, basically, uh, Bitcoin Core Development, I'll just give sort of a general overview. Uh, Coming from the Linux kernel open source space, I try to draw a lot of analogies from that. Bitcoin is an open source project, and uh, the Bitcoin protocol itself, changes to that are modeled after the IETF RFC process. It's called a BIP, or Bitcoin Improvement Proposal. And so if you're going to change the protocol, then you'll follow a standard process where you'd uh, create an implementation, write up a draft specification, then you'd engage the community in that regard. Um, In terms specifically of Bitcoin development, um, there's no entrance exam, there's, there's no qualification. All you have to do is show up and start contributing. Now, if you show up and start contributing at a sort of either low knowledge or low quality level, then you'll take a longer time to build trust with the existing programmers and the existing community. But if you show up, and this this happens both in the Linux kernel and in Bitcoin, you show up, you know your stuff, you're a genius, your changes are uh, are perfect, then uh, they'll be instantly accepted.
3: And but we so... have a problem, Peter. Though, is uh, you got you two are. Core developers, but there's not enough core developers, are there? I think that's an education issue. I think it's just the number of people who really understand
6: the protocol is extremely small, and that's a problem. Yeah, it is a problem, and it's not a problem that you go fix by, you know, creating a group negotiating access to core protocols. It's probably fixed by teaching people.
5: Yeah, that has to happen naturally and, and organically, I think. But one nice thing that's happening outside the development community and the research community that I can speak to is uh, there are a lot of academics now actually taking a more critical look at uh, Bitcoin, who are excited about Bitcoin, who are excited about so the it's opportunities a of the Cryptographer's dream, isn't it? To like it study is, Bitcoin. indeed. It's it's suddenly put cryptography uh, you know front square and center, and um, so that's really exciting. And um, and there are a lot of young bright minds who actually have uh, are, are very excited. So that. I think there's good organic growth, and that. But
3: also, I mean, BitPay um, has effectively paid for you to be um, full-time core development. But there are a few other companies that are doing the same thing. So we, you know, we need to encourage that.
4: Absolutely, uh, we need not only education, but uh, <clears throat> other Bitcoin companies uh, need to not get into the mode of thinking where if they want something, they come to the core developers. That's not how open source works. If you want something done, you need to hire the developers to do it, and your developers will then become your interface into the Bitcoin community. Because right now we have so few core developers that uh, it's simply not scalable to add task upon task. You need to scale horizontally and add more developers. So, uh, a lot of businesses are uh, are just floating, just starting in the community, and they need to learn uh, that you know either you need to hire some developers yourself, or there are, uh, for example, the Bitcoin Foundation does uh, fund uh, three core developers right now as well, and so contributing to the Bitcoin Foundation
3: also contributes to core development. But every company should, uh, particularly every company that's raised finance, should have in their business plan to at least. Um, you know, contribute a core developer, not just poach a core developer from another company, but actually create a new core developer.
5: Absolutely and also it's important to note that development isn't just a single uh, single sort of stage of a, of, of a process. It's really a pipeline. You need research and development. So um, uh, I think we saw with the selfish mining discovery that indeed uh, there are some issues that are higher than we need to write some code. That somebody needs to think about, well, what are the dynamics of this distributed system? What do we need to anticipate ahead? And uh, these are not easy, easy issues and it really takes a, a resource pipeline, then followed by a development pipeline.
4: Absolutely. And uh, to steal some of uh, something that Peter Todd said uh, a couple days ago in response to something I said in Twitter, (laughs) um, we often compare Bitcoin to medical device software or avionics software because it's to such a level that it simply can't fail. But Bitcoin is a binary uh, equation in that it's either worth zero or non-zero. You know, maybe that's self-evident, but if you think about the reverse of... If there's a break, then it'll quickly go to zero. So um, it's it's very, very high-level software that just has to work. But it also is under-researched. And so we're, it's a dilemma in software development because when we need to advance the uh, protocol, advance the community, we really are breaking new ground. Well, and I mean, I and we, we need both research and development to, uh,
3: to get us where we need to go. But Bitcoin itself has a value, so it's its, its own prize mm-hmm. to be studied and mm-hmm. to, to find security issues.
6: Yeah. And you know, also um, put out a positive note, which is to point out that the core Bitcoin development, it doesn't necessarily don't necessarily expect to change that much. It's not unlike, say, TCPIP. On the other hand, there's this whole ecosystem around it, which I didn't make the analogy of the web, where we do see a lot of very innovative, very fast work. And companies in the space who do things like experiment with multisig, they're pushing Bitcoin forward, even if they may not be directly working on this so-called Bitcoin core software. And they deserve, I think, a lot of credit for that.
3: So that, that's a great segue. So let's talk about multi-sig for a moment. Um, how important is it, and is it is it the next generation of wallets that will make people feel safer? And um, is that are we solved? Are we done with with safety?
4: It, it's <laughs> absolutely necessary. Um, it's been in the Bitcoin protocol since day one. But uh, so that gives you an idea of how long it's taken to uh, develop an actual secure wallet. Um, I like to make an, uh, not an analogy, but uh, uh, Bitcoin is really pushing the bounds of computer security. Stop. Period. End of end of sentence. The. Uh the computer security community has never before been called upon to secure a single digital file whose theft may result in millions of dollars of value being transferred. You've had secure software before, you've had encrypted software before, but never is a file sitting on your computer been worth so much. So it, 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 it demands a whole new level of security. Multi-sig is just the first step. In key. that uh, process. You want
3: S- to that comment?
5: S- yeah, so um, I like to call Bitcoin the universal bounty program. So, um, in the old days, when you found a, a bug in some kind of an operating system or some kind of a platform, you'd have to prove to the platform operators that indeed this is a real serious bug. I could break into your system. They would push back on you. They'd be like, you don't really have a demonstrated exploit. We're not going to recognize your bug, and so forth. And this was a given, you know, this was, t- uh, you know, back and forth. And it really just sort of wore everybody down. But with the invention of bitcoin now any hacker as soon as he finds a zero-day vulnerability gets to collect rewards and this at, at, at once is both very infuriating because you know you suddenly have these news reports of oh my god my bitcoins are gone somebody swept through and took them all off but really these people are doing some uh, 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 in some perverse way service to the community in identifying the flaws and uh, there really is a big issue, though, which is the platforms that we use to secure Bitcoins, both on the server side and on the client side, are typically not worthy of holding assets of such great value. And we really need to uh, take really great measures. As we to saw secure. with Mt. Gox. We, yeah. So Mt. Gox is a separate issue. So Mt. Um, Gox, it's not really clear what happened, um, but uh, there are many other exchanges that failed. And uh, there are a lot of exchanges that failed due to uh, poor server construction, uh, similar there are a lot of stories of people who lost, uh, uh, lost their Bitcoins due to errors or, or flaws in the client side software. So we really need to, to improve the state of computer security at all levels.
3: So Peter, when, if um, wallets that have multi-sig built in become the norm, then what about the services that um, provide value-added um, multi-sig? What happens to them? Do you need them? Or? I think you still need them. In fact, it, I'd say it becomes
6: more interesting to use them. Because if, for instance, if I go make the promise that I will help keep your Bitcoin secure, and you will also have another part of a multi-sig wallet, it's really both of us are authorizing the transaction to happen. So if my business is to, say, run a you know, security service where I'm vetting what's going on, I'm doing the auditing, and you're a company, really we've set up this arrangement where we're both participating and keep your coins secure.
3: Yet, you can easily get into that arrangement because I can't run with your money either. And some of them have insurance policies as well, which is a nice belt and braces kind of approach. And
4: it's a very interesting uh, problem for regulators as well, because with multisig, who actually controls those funds? If it's three organizations holding three keys, who legally owns those funds? And so you can't really write legislation that says, you know, these Bitcoins are... Uh, you know this certain legal category, because it might be partially owned and partially controlled
3: so let 's move on to um, uh, confirmation time so in e commerce we need fast confirmations we need to know that a transaction has happened, you need to be able to leave the store um, or they need to let you leave the store knowing that they 've been paid for something or or with an ATM when, when you make a withdrawal, you need to know that you know, you've shown your Bitcoin uh, QR code or whatever, and you need to be able to withdraw the cash. So sometimes these take a long time. What's being done to help that?
4: Well, uh, my, my personal uh, pet project is uh, uh, payment channels. And payment channels are a uh, smart contract technology. It's a two of two multi-sig technology whereby uh, you agree to with a server to lock in some funds. Once the funds are locked in on the blockchain, you can securely and rapidly revise a transaction in a trustless way such that if the server departs the client receives their full refund. And this is guaranteed by the Bitcoin protocol. If the client departs, then the server or the merchant still has the funds up to the point where the client departed. So it's a functionally an automatic settlement type mechanism. However, it can be rapidly revised. You can have four billion of these in you know per second in theory. So, and they're all digitally signed and they can be published on the blockchain. Um, that's just one example of a technique that provides instant secure transactions and you don't have to wait for a confirmation time. There are other uh, techniques out in the field that are exploring similar uh similar trains of thought, but uh, whenever someone says that Bitcoin is too slow because of the confirmation time, then they're they're just looking at the lowest layer, they're looking at IP of TCP IP, whereas Bitcoin is many layers of an onion and you have to look at how you can build trustless systems on top of the Bitcoin protocol such that they achieve your goals.
3: Very good. So, um, what other exciting things are happening in Bitcoin Core in the next year? Let's start with Peter. Um, well, I mean, me personally,
6: I go work for a bunch of groups that are trying to go build financial instruments on top of Bitcoin, and I think we're going to see a lot of exploration in that space. You're going to see a lot of things like people experimenting with issuances of stocks, of bonds. Um, you may have heard of the term colored coins is a very early example of this, and that's being explored. You've also got embedded consensus systems, like your master coin, your counterparty, that are really, in some ways, changing the Bitcoin protocol, but for a narrow group of users. So you can have one small group of users that care about a set of rules. They can choose to follow those rules, and the rest of the Bitcoin community doesn't have to care what they're doing. And then they can accept rules that, for instance, may allow stock trading, may allow distributed markets, may allow... Me, you guys are finance people, you can think of a ton of finance instruments I'm not familiar with. But it remains to see how valuable this stuff really is in the real world. I think some of it certainly will be, some of it won't be, and, you know, we'll have a whole space of exploration.
5: Yeah, we'll certainly see value-added services built on the blockchain. The blockchain allows us to bootstrap trust, and that's going to be an enormous enabler for a lot of services.
4: And uh, in general, uh, there are a lot of people who are in the altcoin space who I think they, they have a, a legitimate desire in that uh, uh, the term that I use is appcoin. If you have an application and you want to have some tokens, etc., a cryptocurrency can be a, uh, an excellent choice. But... The current altcoins, that's uh, the alternative currencies that are built on, uh, you know, Bitcoin code base, like Litecoin, etc
3: they are ba- wildly insecure. I'll, I'll be blunt. Um, <laughs> and, and also, I mean, less and less significant. I mean, in terms of market cap, Bitcoin is, you know.
4: Well, well, just, just to finish the point is that app coins are a valid use case, but altcoins are a poor implementation of that use case. So what we're going to see in the future is uh, side chains or tree chains and that is a technology that allows you to bootstrap on Bitcoin's network strength while at the same time having a totally separate chain, a totally separate currency or even outside the currency space, a totally separate distributed database, and an example of that is Namecoin, which attempts to uh, create sort of a decentralized DNS. And Namecoin has its own problems, but as an analogy, that works, is Bitcoin is fundamentally a database technology at the end of the day. And currency is just one application that runs on that consensus database technology. So once you have other app coins, which bootstrap on Bitcoin's network strength, and side chains and tree chains are two proposals that do that, then you'll see a different explosion of altcoins in the future, typically running on the Bitcoin protocol the Bitcoin blockchain. So that's another exciting development but in the future. How do
3: features get decided for Bitcoin Core, and who's in charge? And you know, who decides these things. We're features? all in charge. Everybody. Yeah, but in, I, in the well, real world,
6: you can't I, all be in charge. Well, I think what's interesting <laughs> about it is that technologies like sidechains and tree chains. a lot of what's driven the ideas behind them is this notion that it would be better off if we didn't have to ask permission. Um, and with embedded consensus systems like MasterCoin counterparty as well as your colored coins, they're designed under the assumption that Bitcoin core protocol won't change. Therefore, we should go work within that protocol to come up with something new. And I think there's been a lot of success with people building on top of Bitcoin without making the assumption that all the stuff they do has to change Bitcoin itself. And that's been, I think, a very, very successful process. Whereas the proposals that assume that, we right, we're gonna change what Bitcoin is, they kind of tend to just sit there on mailing lists because it takes so much time to get that consensus. It's not impossible, it does happen. We have made a few changes to Bitcoin. P2SH with multisig as an example. But it's slow and it's not the way I personally would do things. And I think going forward, we're gonna look for ways to make permissionless development more easy to accomplish so we do not have to continue changing the core
3: Bitcoin protocol. So one last question before we open it up to the uh, to the floor.
4: Well, one, one okay. quick addendum, if you don't yeah. mind. I, I would uh, point out that the Bitcoin protocol was built to be extensible. Satoshi, at many levels, put in extensibility into the Bitcoin protocol. You can add new script opcodes, you can, uh, you know, uh, x the uh, transaction malleability issue, there was the uh, notion that you could piggyback some more data onto transactions. There are several other avenues of extensibility that are built into Bitcoin. And so the Bitcoin protocol itself is not just frozen in time. It moves slower than most people in the community would probably like, but when you have to be conservative with $8 billion worth of value.
3: So what if you get to a place in the world where you have no internet? Then how would you get the blockchain? I mean, how would you?
4: Well, what a wonderful question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of of my pet projects is uh, putting uh, Bitcoin in space. So uh, I am, uh, I'm currently contracted with uh, Deep Space Industries. We're designing CubeSats, which will process the blockchain. Once we get the CubeSats up into space, of course you need some governmental approval at launch time and frequency, et cetera. But once they're up in the space, there's no off switch. And so if you need uh, remote access, to Bitcoin, you would have the full blockchain, that's not a uh, simplified payment verification, you have full trustless verification. And also, if uh, you know, even if you're in the Western world and well connected to the internet, et cetera, if you're Sybil attacked, you have a local attack, that's an excellent resilient backup mechanism as you can download from satellite down to earth. So, and that's trustless, the satellites using the same Bitcoin D algorithms, To evaluate every block so even if the ground stations that are sending the blocks up to the satellites are malicious the Bitcoin algorithm itself guarantees that that's not going to be a uh, an issue and you know I think I can kind of generalize
6: where you're going with the satellite say what's really strong about Bitcoin is it's just a piece of data with an algorithm and your ability to be secure is in part dependent on how easily you can get that data And if you have more connections to different computers and so on, you are more secure because you're less able to be censored from what the true Bitcoin blockchain is. And that's a very powerful statement. And it really leverages what the internet is good at, which is distributing data.
4: It's it's definitely censorship resistant, but uh, uh, moving beyond satellite and generalizing a bit, it's useful to Bitcoin to find different avenues to distribute the blockchain and distribute block headers. I egged uh, Peter here on uh, months ago to <laughs> post block headers to Twitter as an example of an alternate distributive mechanism. He blocked me after a month. <laughs> but
3: then you had a comment on, on Jeff's...
5: Um, yeah, so I, I really respect Jeff's effort to get to the moon and, and to do that <laughs> first uh, by going to outer space. Um, but uh, um, and, and it's 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 a wonderful, laudable effort. Um, I do think, though, that, that we really have some issues on the ground here. So. Oh, no question, no question. <laughs> (laughs) Both on the service side and on the client side. I think my worries really reside with security, computer security. So it's great to get uh, the data on the blockchain and so forth. But if your processing engine is compromised, you're dead. And that's really the number one issue that I see uh, coming up ahead.
3: Thank you. So let's uh, see if there's any questions from the audience. We have one in the front row. Uh, Do we need to get a microphone to them or just over here front row?
1: Hello, um, my name is Olivier Janssens, and I recently did like a $100,000 bounty to replace the Bitcoin Foundation. I don't know if you heard about that. Um, because I think it really lacked transparency and was sort of, yeah, uh, no longer representing the community properly. So as the winner was Mike Herm with Lighthouse. And one of the main things I want to accomplish is sort of like decouple the developers from the foundation so you're not depending on them for your wages. So I was wondering if you guys are willing to use this platform in the future to have crowdfunding uh, happen and be crowdfunded by the community so the community can actually choose like which um, yeah, features they want to have implemented.
4: Well, if, if you want to choose what features to have implemented, <laughs> just hire developers yeah. to write them.
6: I'll point out um, Zero Cash, which is one of the projects I'm working on. We're planning on using Lighthouse to go raise funds in the future, and we're really looking forward to that.
4: And Lighthouse is, in particular, a fantastic platform. It makes use of a uh, feature in the Bitcoin protocol whereby you can collectively build a transaction among many, many people, and it's it's a binary decision. It's not valid on the Bitcoin network until the transaction is fully funded. So, if I need to raise a thousand bitcoins and you know he contributes a bitcoin, he contributes a bitcoin. It's not valid until that thousand is reached. And so that uh, addresses, in part, the uh, the free rider problem and or who goes first problem in economics. Thanks. Any other questions? There's one over here. Hello, I'm Denison. Um, On the subject of education, is there any work being done to maybe do something like um, a master's degree in Bitcoin or would you leave to work in a university setting where you just simply teach the next generation of people who are gonna be
5: working in Bitcoin? Most like- definitely, I can speak to that. I think uh, there's so much interest uh, for cryptocurrencies among the young students, among the 18 to 22 crowd, that I am um, I know what we're doing at Cornell, and I can speak to that. Our operating systems class, where students learn how to program and write systems code, uh, actually covers Bitcoin. Uh, our master's classes typically have a lecture or two on on crypto uh, applications with specific application to Bitcoin. So, we're certainly covering the topic. Um, so, a master's program in Bitcoin is a little too much, but there are master's theses being uh, written, uh, looking at different aspects of blockchain analysis, for example. And uh, there are even some uh, PhD uh, theses uh, coming out of different institutions. Uh, the UC system has a couple of people who've actually looked very closely at, uh, at um, uh, blockchain analysis. So it's certainly making its way, and it's coming. And it's happening organically. It's, it's, we're certainly educating the next set of people who want to learn about cryptocurrencies.
4: Yeah, I think that's that's an excellent way to put it. It's happening organically. You see, computer science uh, departments in uh, many universities that I'm familiar with are are just sort of scrambling to catch up with this technology, but uh, they will eventually have distributed consensus in most major computer science programs. But uh, what? one thing i find interesting and i hope that universities pursue is that uh, bitcoin is really a fusion of computer science game theory economics etc and uh, computer scientists don't typically graduate with uh, <laughs> economics you know on their on their brain and economists don't typically uh, have much background in computer science and so i can see economics departments growing a uh, you know a dual major or some sort of cross pollination between the two because cross-pollination exists in the real world.
5: But most certainly. So me- mechanism design is a topic that marries uh, both distributed systems with economics and game theory. So that's a topic that has uh, received a lot of academic attention already. And, um, and there are uh, a lot of programs that are actually looking at this. And game theory courses most certainly touch upon aspects of distributed system design, incentive-compatible distributed system design.
6: And also to point out for developers, there is developer documentation. Very good documentation recently was written up on Bitcoin.org. And that was a great effort to see happen.
4: And in general, uh, an invitation to uh, anyone listening is I have an open email policy. Jay at BitPay.com. If you have an incredibly uh, complex Bitcoin question, you're more than welcome to email us or email the list or join the... Uh, Pound Bitcoin IRC and we're more than happy to answer questions and mentor people into the space. We're desperate to get more developers. We want 1000X developers of what we have now.
3: Next question, there was one over here. Yeah, you mentioned uh, side chains. Um, I'm just interested to know, does that contribute positively to the network or does it add
4: some unnecessary weight just wondered if you could speak about that a little bit more. Well, that, that's a bit of a su- subjective question, I think. the uh, I don't really want to form an opinion on that question. It's really a uh, matter of the community, and are they paying transaction fees? Are they following the protocol? You know, the rules are really technical rather than uh, subjective. I think side chains uh, or whatever solution... Uh, approximates that are very important because they allow us to shed some load off the Bitcoin blockchain which is uh, useful for efficiency but is it good that's that's a religious question these things kind of come
6: down to analysis of the incentives behind and sort of the technical um, incentive compatibility and then what it does for minor profitability. So there is very heated debate within the Bitcoin community about it. Although to answer kind of the really broad question, regardless whether you're doing an embedded consensus system, a side chain or a tree chain system, you're all contributing towards the same 51% attack security of Bitcoin, which is different from an altcoin where you're doing something entirely separate.
3: Okay, I'd like to thank our panel, Gunn, Peter, Jeff, and I'm Jeff.
1: Thanks so much for listening to our coverage of Coin Summit. If you enjoyed this episode, please support us with your donation. It really helps us travel to conferences and produce high-quality content for you. You can donate at epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips, where we have our tipping addresses and also an option for donation subscriptions. Your support is much appreciated and special thanks to those generous souls who have already donated to the podcast.